1: You hear the gospel influences in pop music so much more now. And like, you just have to take your flowers for that because you said gospel is mainstream, God is mainstream, and there is no separation because God is everywhere.
2: That's sweet of you. No,
1: is that sweet of me? It's that sweet of me? Kirk Franklin, no, uh-huh.
2: no. <laughs> <laughs> she get turned up. i like to say get turned up. Listen. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, Brothers and sisters. <laughs> my name is Kirk Franklin. And I come to give you good words. Let's go. Good words, family today's guest has been paving the way for writers and comedians since early in her career. She became the first black woman head writer of any late night talk show at the hymn of the nightly show with Larry Wilmore. And you guys got to understand, Larry Wilmore is one of the most funniest legends in the game. Then she's the first black woman to be head writer for the White House Correspondence Dinner. Did you hear that? Not the gray house, not the purple house. (laughs) Not the Magenta House, but she was up there with all the good white folk, <laughs> doing her good comedy writing with the big people, y'all. And then she's with the groundbreaking Emmy-nominated series, A Black Lady Sketch Show. She's fired. She's the first black woman to create, executive produce, and star in a sketch comedy series, not to mention the cast is full of funny women. I hope y'all been watching. They've been renewed for a fourth season. Do you know how difficult that is? Don't sleep, family. Please welcome the multi-talented, Robin Thede. Yeah! Robin Thede. Come on!
1: Come on! Man!
2: Has anybody ever brought you out like that?
1: Never! Never! It's Broke the main you, reason I, knew- I wanted to talk to you because I said I'm going to get the best intro I've ever had in my life!
2: So now did you did you have any idea of who I was when you got this phone call? Are you kidding me? What I are don't you know. talking about?
1: Yes, I don't um, know. yes, absolutely. And if I can do the same intro back, it would take three years to list all of your accolades. You can say it. You but can say it. no, I have been listening to you for decades. Wow. I mean, I remember when the God's property album came out. I mean, you had us in a club dancing like the music was a church music, like, I mean, stomp everything. But like, even before that, obviously I was raised in the church. So I have known your music since I was a kid and I'm, I'm so honored to talk to you today. I'm so happy that that you're doing this. Your podcast is so good. First of all, you have the best intro music, which duh, of course. Um, (laughs) But the conversations you've been having with these incredible people, nobody's doing Mm. it like this. You've given Mm. us so much in terms of music and culture and community but to do this now with this podcast is just a gift. So no, I am a massive fan, so thank you so much.
2: Well, I'm very humble, but listen, man, you can go from every aspect of comedy, you know, it's very thought provoking. It can be hood, it can be ratchet, it can Mm -hmm. be intentional, it can be broad. And I just think to be able to have that type of gravity as a woman of color and to hit so many home runs the way you do, like who in your family was funny? Who you Um. raised around that was the fool? You know
1: what? It's funny because I always say I'm the least funny person in my family. Everybody is so funny. My dad named me after Robin Williams. He loved comedy. Oh, you serious. So serious. Uh, my mom is so funny. She's in politics. She's actually a state representative. But my parents were both teachers when I was a kid. Wow. And they have really had a second act in politics as all the kids grew up. I have two sisters. So as we got out of the house, they started something different. But even when they were in the schools, you know teaching, they were so funny and everyone loved being around them. So when we go home for Christmas and all that cutting up, I'm nowhere near the funniest person, so I definitely come by it in the DNA.
2: Are you (laughs) serious? Now, now, I know you get this a lot. And and I know that, you know, we live in an era where everybody is stereotyped. But as a black man, as your brother, let me just go ahead and throw it out there. You know, and if I fall on my face, let me fall on my face. Uh For you to be so cute. (laughs) Because, you know, like, like my wife is funny. She's mad beautiful. But, you know, she's not a full-time comedian. Like, (laughs) how did the cute and the comedy, like, how did you balance that? Because I know most people, when they see you, there's a seriousness that they put up. You know, she dope, she bad. But then you you are hilarious. Did you. you ever struggle with trying to get one to not disappoint the other?
1: It's interesting. I think for me... Um, you know, I grew up in a school where my sisters and I were really the only black kids or one of a few. And Mm -hmm. so they didn't care what we looked like. They just knew we were different. Right. So we caught a lot of that heat. And so I truly wasn't called cute till I was like in college. And like, I got to know new people outside of where I grew up. Yeah. Like, so I didn't grow up thinking, oh, I'm cute. I'm going to make it on my looks or any of that. I mean, I think beauty is very subjective, and we're all blessed with our own types. I just like making people laugh, <laughs> you know? And I guess, you know, look, I have a great team. Now they be beating the face. they be doing all the things, yeah, but yeah, 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 I don't yeah, think yeah, it was yeah. like a struggle or anything. I mean, no one was ever like, you're not funny because of the way yeah, you look. Yeah. But I do think people are surprised, especially on the sketch show. I love to play crazy looking characters, right? I so, love it. I love, I love to look crazy. So when people see me looking, you know, how I normally look, they're always kind of like, oh, wow, you know, so that <laughs> that that is kind of fun.
2: Well, you know, I'm quite sure my question was just a typical man question.
1: Well, what most men say is, now, I didn't think women were funny, but you actually made me laugh. And I'm like, that's not a
2: compliment, but thank you. <laughs> well, I would never say that. I just think that it's really dope for you to have, you know, just all that balance, especially when you went through this painful era of your life at age 13 doing a Christian puppet that let me tell you something that I just feel the pain like I want to cry for you
1: I loved it oh,
2: what was the pup- I loved it. what was the puppet's name
1: Oh, I did multiple puppets. Um, we, So I toured with a Christian puppet group called King's Kids. And it was half puppetry and half like song and dance. I mean, we would use 15 different puppets in the show. It was amazing. We had a teacher from the Jim Henson School come and teach us how to do it. I still do it. We, we use puppets on my show now. Like, I loved it. I'm going to tell you, because I was not the sort of kid... Like we grew up going to like Christian camp and speaking in tongues and doing all of that. And that just got a little wild for me. Yeah. Like Pentecostal camp. Yeah. And so that got a little wild. God
2: bless your poor
1: heart. God bless your (laughs) poor heart. Listen, we were speaking in tongues at eight. You know, it was just, it was a lot. But the puppet group was really a good outlet because I was such a performer, you know. And so for me, it was like, okay, I get to go to church, but I get to leave. I don't have to go to main service. I get to go to practice and I get to go practice our songs and I get to go practice the puppets and all that
2: stuff. So I actually loved it. Now, did you find the ability to be able to be diverse and to be able to take things that may have been funny or things that may not have been the a normal way of comedy based on even your background, because you were raised poor, were you able to take certain yeah. things and turn them into props? Do you yeah. think that's where that came from? I think that's a really good point. I
1: think, you know, I grew up in a trailer park with nothing. It was just us and the roaches, you know, and like, but it was great because my family We're like, okay, on the outside, people may think we're poor, but what's going on in our family is very rich. And they raised us that way. Right. Like you can have whatever you want as long as you have a strong foundation. But every time we left the house, it was kind of like putting on the armor and having to think about, okay, who am I going to have to like? Like I was little. I couldn't fight nobody. I weighed negative pounds. (laughs) So I had to make them laugh, you know, and so. I do think that did help with the comedy and it, and it helped me create characters later on in life that are more relatable for different types of people. I think if I would have grown up really privileged economically, I was privileged, you know, emotionally. Um, my mm. parents have been married 50 years. I have two great sisters, family, lots wow. of cousins. And aunts. I mean, I have a really rich you know, family in terms of love, but I do think it helped me see all types of different characters and people who middle-class America wouldn't always see and have sympathy for that. You know what I mean? And have like, you know, I have family members, everybody from people who are elected officials to people who, who have been battling addictions for years, you know, and Mm. as black people, we all kind of have that range, you know, a lot of times, but
2: Unfortunately.
1: Unfortunately. But I think it really made me sympathetic and empathetic to where people are in their lives and kind of how they come to us and meeting people where they are.
2: Now, is there anything that you had to reconcile as someone who grew up navigating poverty like that and now you can buy you some red bottoms. Now you can buy your little Gucci belt. Okay, say, you know. Okay. You know, did you have to make an adjustments within yourself and your way of thinking to a person who now has some financial means?
1: You know what's wild about that? I think that is still a struggle for me. Me too. I I can go buy.
2: Is it? Me too. Yes.
1: Okay, because I still have a poor person's mentality about so many things. Me too. This is before the pandemic. I remember I was out to eat at some fancy restaurant and they were like, cool, the fries are $15. I said, well, I guess I'm not having fries. Why are they $15? (laughs) I don't drink, so I don't spend money on that kind of stuff. I'm like, I still cannot get over the price of things. And- I have some luxury items, but not a lot. I don't really live like that. I take care of my family and paid off my parents' mm. house. I make sure my sister and mm. my nieces and nephews are good. And, you know, I just try to be smart about it because I know that this business can come and go also. Yes. Right. And I never yes. want to be in a place where it's like, Oh, I used to have all this and now I don't have anything. So I think I always still look at things through a poor person's lens, even though I'm very blessed and I acknowledge I have what I need and more. Right. But, I do have to fight that. How does it affect you? Like when you're thinking about stuff, like when you're looking at the price, like,
2: are you still a person who looks at the price? You still, you still have buyer's remorse. <laughs> it's, you know, yes. There's, yes. there's always that buyer's remorse. You always be like, nigga, why? Why, why get did this? I buy this? And yeah. it's interesting for you and I probably, it's easier for us to buy other people's stuff. Always. than it always. is for us to buy ourselves some stuff. Always. Yeah.
1: That and the thing of like, uh, Buying something for somebody else, but if they don't act, this is Sam, I really struggle with this. I'm about to be really real. If
2: they don't Why act as grateful as I want yeah! them to act,
1: <laughs> I'm like, do you know how much
0: that costs? Yes, <laughs> yes, yes.
2: You, yeah, but you know though, if I can be honest with you, that also is some of that poverty trauma that we know what what it took for us to even get to the place to buy it. Yeah. And so because of that, we want the response to be as big as the weight of going through it.
1: I want to see it. I want to see the cartwheel. I want to see the tears. Yes, I yes. want to see
2: all that. We want to see them speaking the tongue. We want to see them yes. speaking the tongue. Yes. Yes. Robin, let me ask you this. Now, I promise I'm not trying to be petty, but was your mama the kind of mama, was your mama the kind of mama that even though y'all were living in the trailer park, would your mama and daddy buy you of them blow up pools? Oh, yes. <laughs> I do know my life,
1: yes.
2: Because they got to realize that all you're doing is exacerbating my trauma when you give me stuff that ain't the real thing.
1: (laughs) We out there in the blow up pool, rocks underneath it, cutting holes in the bottom of it. Listen, they bought a secondhand swing set, and the slide had a cut on it. They had rust on it. Every time we slid down that thing, we was bleeding, and we still played on
2: it. (laughs) You got kids out there getting tetanus shots.
1: Listen, we was out there in the slip and slide. We were out there in the blow up mm-hmm. pool, hiding with Listen. the cold water from the hose. Yes, yes,
2: absolutely. Now, were you a kid in the 80s or 70s?
1: In the 80s. Yep. Okay. I was born at the end of 79. So yeah. 80s and
2: 90s were my time. You just read ready then. So how old were you when you realized you were Poe? Uh,
1: probably not until third or fourth grade. And I remember being told I was trailer trash and that I was, I said, no, that's white people. I'm not trailer trash. (laughs) I didn't know that phrase could be used for black people, but there were other black people in my trailer park. Just There was a couple across the street and another family. Um, And it was the same year I got called a Sambo. It was, and I was, like, I had to go home to my mom and be like, what is that? And then she was like, who said it? And where are their parents? Cause we about to fight. And, you know, you get called the N-word and all that stuff. They prepared us for that. But it was like the weird racism, like Sambo. I hadn't read Uncle Tom's Cabin at eight, you know? (laughs) So that kind of stuff. Look at your shoes. They have holes. You wear the same shoes every day, that kind of stuff. Um, Mm -hmm. And then probably once I got into junior high, everybody was wearing the Carl Kanai and all that stuff that I really wanted so bad. And I remember my grandfather in Chicago, because that's where my mom is from, so we would spend summers in Chicago. My grandfather took us to the to the swap meet and we got some Carl Kanai. And I was like, yo, I'm about to kill him this year. It's my eighth grade year. So we got some Carl Kanai. I had a red one with the gold letters. And I didn't know, Ooh. I didn't know that you had to have the plate on the back. So mine did yes. not have the plate. Mine did not have the plate because it was from the swap meet. And it had a Haynes tag. And what I tell oh. you, I got lit up for wearing that fake Knight.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, right now, right now, ladies and gentlemen, we're just going to have a moment of silence for the pain that this young lady went through for not having the plate in the back of her. shirt. <laughs> just be quiet. Just feel the pain. Okay. And we made it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Wait, did you ever go through colorism being a fair-skinned young African-American lady?
1: Yeah, I think so. I'm probably still going through it, but I think it's often to my privilege. And I think that's why it's really important that I make sure that all of us are seen. And I know it's why it's been so important to me on the sketch show, on my late night show, on the nightly show, that that all of us are represented across the different mm. cues of Blackness. Could I complain about some moments of negative colorism? Sure, of course. But I know that my privilege has outweighed that. And I, mm. I, so it's my mission to help make up the gap you know, to help stand in that gap. And the colorism within our own community that we've experienced yeah. is only a product of what white people have done to us since slavery. Exactly. So we okay. didn't have that in Africa. We've only had yeah. that here because that was how we yeah. were rated as being yeah. valuable as slaves. So, yes. you know, that is taught to us. That is not something that yes. is inherent
2: to blackness. Yeah. I so. agree. Now, Robin, I feel like a lot of our audience knows you from this funny sketch comedy show that you are part of. You gotta of. come no. be on it. I would love to. Are you kidding me? You'll be so great. Yo, if I got to ch- tell yo, don't play with your boy. I ain't nobody playing <laughs> over here. I would do that. <laughs> Fool on that thing. Okay, perfect. We gonna make it happen. Done. First of all, thank you, Jesus. Second thing is, though, you've been writing behind the scenes for a minute, though, Robin. Like, how did you get started writing, even for comedians, like for Kevin Hart, Mike Epps? How did you even get in the game?
1: So I went to Northwestern University in Chicago, and I started a sketch group there called Out the Box, and, or brought it back to campus. It had been in the in the early 90s, I think, but then they got kicked off campus for being raunchy or something. But a friend of mine and I brought it back and really revamped it, and it's still there 20 years later. And I got scouted by Second City in my senior year and they paid for me to come go through the training program there. That's huge. Huge. That's huge, especially tell in Chicago.
2: Who, tell people who don't know just a little bit about Second City, give them, give them just a little bit.
1: So Second City is where everybody came. Steve Carell, Tina Fey, you know, oh my God, Jim Belushi. Like every, everybody came through uh, Second City and went on to Saturday Night Live. So, you know, it's a training ground for like, basically every famous sketch comedian in the world has been through second city at some point. And so I got to train there for free because of this black woman named Deanna Griffin, who took care of me and gave me a scholarship. And then I came out to LA with a one woman show after I graduated from that program. And Mike Epps, manager saw me win this competition. Cause I was playing like eight different characters and I wasn't trying to perform like a thespian. I was just trying to do comedy and do characters and, And so I won this competition in Hollywood and he saw me and he said, you know, I would love to have you meet Mike Epps. And he was doing a sketch show that it was for Comedy Central, but I don't know what happened to it. I don't think it ever aired, but it was really fun. He hired me as a writer performer. And then I started writing for him for jokes on the road. And, and then I just got known as, Oh, she's got this young girl has all these jokes. I was 22. They were like, she's Funny. She can write for anybody. And the thing is, because all my life I had been mimicking characters, right? And doing voices and impressions and mimicking Jack A on 227 and like all these characters. Ah. And so I was, you know, oh, baby. You know, I was doing all that stuff. And they would see me doing these characters. And so I would learn the voices of Kevin Hart, Mike Epps, Chris Rock, all these people. So I knew how to mimic their comedy style. Which was dope they would be like yo these jokes are great so my my hit ratio was high um so the jokes that would hit was high and then i was also just a good writer like i had trained in um writing and i've been writing sketch since i was 13 and i just got really good at it fast but it took a long time i mean that was over 20 years this month i've been in la so it took a long time for me to get where i am now but it was years and years of being behind the scenes like you said writing for larry wilmore and working with um, Queen Latifah, and John Stewart and Chris and Kevin and Anthony Anderson, just so many people. So for award shows, I would write for them too. And then they would start hosting award shows. I would write their monologues. Then they would sell TV shows. I went and wrote on Kevin Hart's uh, Real Husbands from Hollywood. So they would just bring me along. Afion Crockett and Jamie Foxx had a sketch show they put me on. So, you know, just over the years grinding away is kind of how it
2: happened. Why do you think it's so difficult to pass that type of information on to the younger generation about the grind. Oof. like what It feels like that what you say, that this next generation, it kind of goes in one ear and, and at the other because access to technology makes everything so instant, but it does not make it always where it's sustainable. Right. So like when you're talking to young women or anybody in the business, How do you get them to really embrace the fact that you were not overnight also adds to the longevity of who you are?
0: Well,
1: it's hard because I look so young. They think I'm young. (laughs) (laughs) Yes,
2: (laughs) ma'am. Yeah. I love
1: it. I think, you know what? It is hard because you can tell them, but for them to really receive it is very different. And I'll tell you a story I don't think I've ever told. I was on a train in Chicago. I was on the L train in Chicago and I was graduating Northwestern about to go to second city. So I, I don't believe God speaks to us in voices. I just believe that God speaks to you in feelings. That's how I've always experienced it. Okay. So okay. I had a feeling that I was hearing a question, but I say this cause I want to be clear. It wasn't a voice. I just heard, I just had this feeling that I was being asked a question. Do you want to be an overnight success or do you want to have a legacy? And you have to decide now. And I was just on the train and I felt it like it hit me in the face. And I thought, I want the legacy. And I remember something shifting and stuff got so hard and it was hard for years. (laughs) But now looking back 20 years later, first of all, that time has flown by. Second of all, I never would have been ready had I chosen the overnight route. But I believe I was just as talented then as I am today. However, I didn't have the business acumen. I didn't have the wisdom to make the most of the opportunities. So what I tell people now is I say, do you want overnight success or do you want a legacy? And depending on what they say to me, I give them advice based on that. So nine times out of 10, they say, I want a legacy. Great. So network laterally with the people who are building now, who support you truly, not just, you know, trying to be around to see what's good um, and work your way up with those people. When I got even 10 years ago, Issa Rae wasn't somebody everybody knew. But I knew her and I knew
2: her 10 years ago, just 10 years ago,
1: 10 years ago in 2014 or 15, she auditioned for me as the head writer of the nightly show. And I was like, we should hire her. Larry said, no, I think she's going to write this scripted project and I'm going to help her because he co-wrote Insecure with her. And yes. And so now look at this woman, an international mogul. So the grind is slow and it's steady. And so if somebody says, I want to be an overnight success, which I don't know why they would say that, but in the rare case that they do, then I say, great, do a TikTok account and find a niche and make yourself really loud and see who finds you. Because that that can happen. There are ways to instant success. The problem is it's fleeting and it's not as lucrative as you think.
2: Yes. Come on, evangelist.
1: Yeah. Well, the people on YouTube who are making millions of dollars are working incredibly hard at making it. And eventually that platform is going to go away. I think about people who were on, who was that one before TikTok? Vine. Remember people were making millions on Vine and then one day Vine was just gone. gone. And I don't want to be on a platform that's just gone. That's why I have always focused. I made videos for Funny or Die on YouTube and I did all that. But it was really critical to me, even for the sketch show, I made sure that we put some of them on YouTube because that's really important. And I wanted people to access it, especially Black people who didn't have HBO because there was no HBO Max when we started this show. So for me, it was really critical that we have access to that, but that I always made television the focal point because television is not going anywhere. Even with streaming or whatever, it's still TV. So for me, I was told that early on and I listened. So that's what I tell people.
2: With that, we're going to take a quick break.
0: You may have heard of the podcast, Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host. Created it. Been doing it for seven years. I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show. But my listeners wanted to write the ad for me. And here are some of the things they said not your regular juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests
2: And let's get back into it. So, I want you to take me to the moment where the idea for a black lady sketch show where you were, did somebody pitch it to you? Were you in the bathtub? Were you on the <laughs> pen? Were you at church taking the Lord's supper? Like where were you when this divine car wreck happened? Yeah. For this incredible show.
1: So I don't think I can pinpoint one moment, but I'll tell you what led up to it, which was that I have been in about 10 black lady sketch groups. Like I was working, like I said, a black woman brought me to second city. We did projects through Brown company, which was named after a train line, not after us being Brown. But, um, and then, and then when I came out to LA, I was in more sketch groups with black people and then just black women, like I was doing in Chicago. And then more and more and more and more. And so every time I was doing live sketch, it was always with black women. And so as I did Chocolate News with David Allen Greer, as I did In the Flow with Afion Crockett and Jamie Foxx, as I did Key and Peele, I was guesting or writing and performing on all these shows. I did six or seven sketch shows before this one. Then I went into Late Night and I was doing sketch there. And I knew that once my Late Night show went away, that I was going to do this sketch show because all the people who had poured into me, Chris Rock, David Allen Greer, Jamie Foxx, all these people that had poured into me showed me what successful sketch looks like and when shows get canceled and what that looks like and why. And it's never because of lack of talent. It's always because of network politics and that kind of thing. So I was thinking, okay, the time will be right for this at some point. And I knew Uh, at the end of my late night show that this would be my next chapter because it had always been on my heart. But the funniest thing is, so I went into another network, not HBO, and I pitched a bunch of other ideas. And at the end, they said, okay, great. Well, it's great to see you. And we all stood up and we all were about to shake hands. And they said, do you have anything else? And I don't know what made this woman ask me this. And I said, yeah, you know what? Honestly, what's been on my heart for years is just to make like a black lady sketch show. That wasn't the title. I was just describing it. And she goes, okay. And then a week later, I get a call from that network and they say, we want to buy the show. And I said, which one? The one I pitched, this one, blah, blah, blah. They said, no, the sketch show. I said, oh, I just said that like a throwaway. But that's time and patience and preparation meaning opportunity. But then it wasn't over. So for six months, we negotiated the budget, but the budget wasn't right. And I knew at that time, I had been a showrunner at that point. And again, that's why I had to be prepared, right? Because once I had the opportunity to make my own, I knew all the things to ask for. I knew how much money I needed. I knew what cast I needed. I knew, you know, so I put that together in a pitch deck and then they said, okay, here's your budget. I said, absolutely not. You need to double that. And they were like, no. So then my late night show got canceled, like very much at the same time. Issa Ray called me, said, what are we doing together? What's up with that sketch show? I said, they're not giving me the money I want. She said, let's go to HBO. And the rest is history. And they gave me the money we needed.
2: I am about to, I'm about to scream, bro. That this, this this is so <laughs> encouraging. When you see somebody's vision come to full throttle and it's alive and well, you, you don't always get a chance to hear about that incredible process and the doors closing and the tension. And so like, why was it important for you to create a show like this though?
1: For that same reason I was talking about earlier, I feel like, you know, there's only been a few of us, Kim Wayans, is such a hero, and we had a chance to have her on the show a couple seasons ago, and she just spoke, oh, so much encouragement into me. I cry every time. It's hard for me to tell the story because I bawl like a baby. But Kim Wayans, we booked her on the show. She said yes immediately, and oh, God, I have to do this without crying. But she, I walk into the makeup trailer, and I don't see her because she's at the other end. I take one step into the trailer, and she goes. I am so proud of you and instant tears. This woman doesn't know me from Adam, d- literally bawling. And I go, what do you mean? And I like get on my knees and I like bow to her. And she's like, get up, get up. You are doing everything that I couldn't do. Mm-hmm. And thank you for creating this space. And thank you for letting me come back and play and in something that feels like home. And so for that reason, my heroes to have angela Bassett say to me of course i said yes to doing your show even though it hadn't even aired yet and i said why she said because you asked they don't ask me i'm not thought of as being funny i am not thought of in this way i'm not thought of as somebody who can improvise and she was amazing she was nominated for an emmy for her performance i do it for those women but i also do it for the women like quinta brunson who can come from Buzzfeed to come star in the first season of the show, Ashley, Nicole black Emmy winner for writing, but who wasn't being looked at on screen like that in scripted roles. And Gabrielle Dennis, who's been grinding as long as I have, but people didn't see her as a comedian. They only saw her as a dramatic actress. So I do it for all of us, for those who are just starting out. So all the way, those Oscar winners who are like the business has pigeonholed me and never
2: allowed me the chance. Angela Bassett was hilarious, and, and she's still fine. Oh my goodness!
1: You've seen her in person, right? It, yes. It yes. Does, the camera doesn't even do it justice.
2: Let me she's tell you something. Done it. Let me, Angela Bassett. I take these young gals, all these city gals, and all these country gals, and all these rapper gals. Let Angela Bassett walk through the room, baby. It's over. It's
1: over. It's over. And they would they would say the same thing. Megan Thee Stallion Mm -hmm. is lovely. She would be like, oh, shut it down. Angela Bassett is here. Like, they all pay respect to her. They all pay respect.
2: And I think it's fascinating that you've created a platform that that just this tapestry of Black girl magic has a place to exist and to be seen in spaces that you don't get a chance to see your normal superheroes, right? But I want to ask you, though, who were you most shocked to hear was interested in being on a Black lady sketch show? You. <laughs> oh, are you, man. Let me tell you something. Don't play with my emotions because I'm a very sensitive. I know. Man. I don't play. I don't play. I will be on the first plane hopping. I'm gonna give you my number. I'm gonna give you my cousin's number. I'm gonna give you my pastor's number. Listen, I'm telling. Ta- I would be honest. Don't play with me. But no, but, listen. But, 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 but this listen, is how
1: I cast the show. The, I'm not playing with you. Like when I go to like the Emmys or these award shows or whatever, people laugh because in the commercial breaks. I wish I could see it. I'm running. I'm like, hey, nice to meet you. You want to be on my show? It. How about you? Hey, Michaela Coel, you want to be on my show? They're I like, who it. is this I woman?
2: Love I love it. I'm there. They will be an honor. Are you kidding me how big and dope that show is? Now, did you grow up though wanting to do what you're doing now? Like, yes, what did always. you think? Okay. Always. So you knew, you knew as a little baby, a little girl swimming in the rock infested blow up pool <laughs> <laughs> with the scratches and the busted up knee and, a and, tennis the, shot. and, and getting a tennis shot every Saturday evening. You knew you were going to do this.
1: Yes. Because I started playing oh, characters. Uh, I started mimicking characters. Off tel- I'm telling you, that's why Jack K is so important to me because 227 was like, Oh, that reminds me of like being at my grandma's house.
2: Just give me a little bit of Jack K again. Just- I
1: kind of need the wig on, but she, you know, like, <laughs> uh, let me tell you something. Friends. So I would take this man and he was real fine. Uh, you know, <laughs> but i love it jackie well thank you she did not used to like that impression but she came around and now she loves it
2: she got to get over it because you're killing it
1: well the thing is she had never heard it she just heard that somebody was going around town doing it and uh i used to do it at said city and she was like i don't want to see that mess but then when we showed her and she came on the show and was in the sketch with us it was just full circle moment so when you ask who am i surprised about it's people like that. It's people like Jack Hay and Marla Gibbs. And we got, um, you know, most all the surviving members of the cast of 227 together. It was such an honor. That to me is just paying it back because they've given us so much. And TV raised yes. me in so many ways. No shade to my parents, but like TV allowed me to interact with my community in ways when I wasn't on the South Side with my grandmother over summer, but like nine months of the rest of the year, I didn't see a lot of us till I was like in junior high, high school, so... For me, it was really critical to see those black families on television and to know that they affected my life so positively and to tell these actors, I know you're not that character. To tell Kim Wayans, you showed me a black woman could do this. Because I grew yeah. up watching SNL, but it yeah. wasn't until in Living Color that I knew we could do this.
2: Agree. Do you do you feel like that the culture doesn't celebrate enough how groundbreaking in living color was like, it feels like the, because there's so many Martin reruns and trust me, Martin is the juggernaut, right? You know, like that's the behemoth, right? But before Martin was in living color. In living color. And I just feel like ain't nobody saying nothing. Why you think we're not saying something about how genius the show was for us?
1: I don't know. And I really wish that these generations, even when we started, so the sketch show aired in 2019. And at that point, Chappelle had been off the air 12 years or something. It was cr- 10 years, maybe it had been off the air oh. and black people like they mess with Key and Peel now, but like they kind of discovered it later, you know? So it was like, we really yeah. hadn't yeah. had anything since Chappelle when we came out and people definitely barely remembered that, let alone
2: yeah.
1: Um, yeah. in living color. You're right. I think yeah. most, most, People under maybe 30, they really only think about Chappelle, maybe Kim Peel, you know, and Martin. our show. yeah, Martin, because yeah, of all the yeah. reruns and Martin was a sketch just, show, just let's be me. clear. You got to remember in Living Color aired on Sunday nights, the prime slot on Fox. Fox only had like yes. 10 shows. TV stopped. Yes. TV stopped at 11 o'clock. We didn't yes. have 24-hour. You couldn't just yes. stream stuff. TV yes. just cut off at 11 o'clock. Yes. And on Sunday, it might have cut yes. off at 10. Living
2: Color aired after the Super Bowl. Yes. Like, it was huge. huge. It was a There huge... was nothing more genius than man on film. Oh my God, two
1: snaps and back, honey. Yes, around the world in a Z Z formation, yes. Listen, and I've worked (laughs) with David Allen Greer every season on this sketch show. He has become such a friend. He is incredible. I'm like, do you understand? I think he does understand, but I think the younger generations now are not giving them their props. He's just like, oh, that old dude, he's funny. It's like, what? Um, Kim Kim Wayans will never get the credit she deserves.
2: What was the sketch she did with her brother when they had the Jerry Girls?
1: Oh, Seafus uh, and Recy, honey, yes, Jira. yes. <laughs> like I can quote every sketch from that show. Don't test me. I think it's in streaming somewhere, but yeah, we need it in syndication. Yeah. People need to see it when they come home from school and like just enjoy it. And I know yes. a lot of it's going to yes. be problematic now, but what
2: isn't? You know, it's fine. What isn't, Robin? Let me ask you a question. What did you do? The first time you had to deal with being noticed, like your first taste of celebrity, like when you came out of a McDonald's or when you came out of, you know, store trying to buy some weed in L.A., you know, what? what, what, what? <laughs>
1: OK, this is funny. So I was head writer on Larry Wilmore's show, but I was also on air probably three or four nights a week, too. OK, so I would be on the panels and in sketches and that kind of stuff. And so this is funny because they recognized me, but they didn't know my name. So Larry and I are taking a lunch break as we're walking, talking about some sketches, going to grab some lunch, walking on 57th Street, in New York and someone points at me and goes, "Larry Wilmore." And I was like, "Do you mean him?" And they were like, "No, you. You're on Larry Wilmore." They didn't even recognize him, which is crazy. And so, I was like, "Yeah, I am and he's right here." <laughs> so, that was awkward, but uh we laugh about it to this day. But I think the first time somebody like I remember being in DC um promoting my late night show, The Rundown, that was on BET, And somebody ran up to me in a restaurant and was just like, yo, I'm so happy there's somebody who looks like you in late night. Um, Because before me, it was only Monique, Whoopi, and Wanda. And that had been a long time. Now you've got Amber and Z-Way, all these amazing women, Black women doing it. I'm just always flattered, to be honest with you. Like, wow, you know who I am. That's so cool. You know, so I I don't know.
2: I don't really know who you are. You're blazing trails and i think that that's the unique thing about being part of the african american experience is because not only when we get an opportunity is that opportunity not just for us it's like every opportunity that we get is a celebration for the village and that can have uh, you know s- sometimes this dichotomy of an of of an emotional experience because sometimes you feel the pressure of that or sometimes you can feel the humility of that right sure. and so it is just beautiful to know that we see each other as an opportunity that we get to vicariously raise the banner of success that's right. when one of ours wins in systems that historically have not always been conducive to who we are.
1: That's right. And I always say Black people are often imitated but rarely celebrated. Amen. And so that's why when we see each other walking down the street, and another black woman has on a cute pair of shoes. You're like, okay, shoes. You don't know this yes. woman at all. At and all. she going to give you the, okay. Like, yeah, and yeah, that's yeah, all yeah. we have to say. Yeah, And, and you ain't like, said
2: nothing to her. You spoke to her shoes. And she correct. understood what you meant.
1: That's right. That's black so, magic. Yeah. That's black
2: magic. <laughs> <laughs> now, since you knew a little bit about your boy, Kirk, did you grow up in a church that you sang in the choir? Did you know any, some of the gospel joints? Talk to your boy. But listen. Listen,
1: when I tell you that God is so good, but he did not see fit to bless me with a singing voice. (laughs) He didn't give me math or singing, but he gave me so much else. And he allowed me the opportunity to be uh, history breaking and groundbreaking and funny and a a leader and all of these things. When I sing uh, glass breaks just to get away from me, like I don't have it. I don't have it. But but does that stop me? It does not. Uh, but I didn't do choir because I was doing the puppet group. So we would sing in that a little bit. Okay. But I'm the person that as soon as the choir starts, I'm bawling. Mu- <laughs> mu- music has always moved me. And I, you know, my mother would, she had the Mahalia Jackson records all the way to the Whitney Houston Ooh. because early Whitney Ooh. Houston was gospel.
2: It was. And so, yeah.
1: you know, Bobhead headed at Whitney was gospel music. I mean, there might have been some secular lyrics, but Whitney coming out the water with the ball
2: head—that was gospel music. Now, let me tell you something. <laughs> I remember that, and I just remember Listen. thinking, because it came out in the eighties, I was a teenager. I just remember, yeah. I just remember she needs a hamburger.
0: She just needs. <laughs> she was, I know she was so scared.
2: Boy.
1: All of that gospel music, and then when you crossed over so differently with your music it changed and then of course we have been listening to the Clark sisters and all of this and then Mm -hmm. later on Yolanda Adams and
2: Mm -hmm. I love Leandra
1: Johnson and all these big voices right and we love the big voices oh come on come on Leandra please oh my god but you made space for these young kids what is the kids the four siblings the walls group I love the Walls Group, but, but then you also you hear the gospel influences in pop music so much more mm-hmm. now, and mm-hmm. like you just have to take your flowers for that because you said gospel is mainstream, God is mainstream, and there is no separation because God That's is sweet, everywhere.
2: Man. That's sweet. Not, of is it's
1: sweet of me. It's not sweet of me, Kirk Franklin. That's uh-huh. the best.
2: <laughs> <laughs> she get turned. To I like to say get turned. Listen,
1: to <laughs> <laughs> but also Mary, Mary, and you know everybody who's been doing it. Ooh, but yes. I think yes. we don't. We don't give y'all the credit for that, nor do you get the credit for that. So that, you know, if I'm only just one person saying it, there's a lot of people saying it, but we need to say it more. And I think we're in a new time where we need it more than ever.
2: What moment in your life did you and God get cool? Like when did y'all become cool friends?
1: I mean, from birth. I think my struggle was always with, church as an institution Mm. that Mm. was always a little tough for me because Mm. you know like we were in a catholic church until i was five because my grandmother Mm. from memphis tennessee annie ruth white was catholic (laughs) and so Mm. she wore her big church hats her matching outfits you know coordinating all that so my mom put us in a catholic church but i remember this being told at five that we had to leave because my mother was married to a white man and so right what Yep. And then we went to the Pentecostal church (laughs) where they were like, great, no problem. But I will say that started at a very young age. The struggle for me with the institution. um, But I never wavered about God and I've never wavered about God. But I had to just find my right church homes and I had to find the right people. And then I was fine. But it was a struggle for a long time, even up until, you know, Adulthood. But at the same time, we were still in church three days a week because I had puppet rehearsal, I had Bible study. <laughs> like we couldn't afford anything, right? And church was free. Like yeah. that's one of the brilliant things about church. And my church had mm-hmm. computers. My wow. church had resources for us. They had books that they would loan us. They gave us food. We got a food basket every week from the church. The church ended up being, after the first bad experience, the church ended up being the service of God, right? Showing mm-hmm. you the service that God talks about. Mm-hmm. But then there's some some people were backstabbing about to my mom and stuff like that. And I didn't really like that. But she she's fine and it was fine. And she's still in church every Sunday. I am not. <laughs> <laughs> I got to be honest. I'm not going to lie.
2: Now, let me ask you a question about this church. Yeah. Was this a white congregation that kicked y'all out of the Catholic church? Oh, for sure. Okay. And
1: remember, this was 1985. Yeah. So, wow. you know, it was a different time. But they say you're not really welcome here because interracial marriage is against our religion.
2: Which I say, show me in the Bible. Yeah, I agree. We're saying in the book. Now, is there anything that you do now? Is there any devotion time or ritual that you have that you get a chance to spend time with God and to be able to connect with him on some level?
1: Let me tell you how my career took off. So the first seven years or so, I spent my career being focused on me. What can I get? What show can I book? What can I do? Then I realized when I had $7 to my name that that attitude was getting me nowhere. Mm. And so I started thinking about Cause I was, it, it was an eye centered thing because of what we talked about earlier, which was poverty mindset. Yes. And it was like, well, I have to do for me because no one's gonna do for me because I've never had anything.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I was grasping at nothing, but I was holding on tight to it. And then once I realized I could let that go and make my life about the service, I watched my mom get into politics in service of others. I watched my father do the same thing and they have been in service to people their whole lives as, as educators. But then even further working with teachers unions and my mom was fostering kids and like they have always been people of service. But I became a very selfish person in my mm-hmm. 20s and things started falling away. The early success I had started to have started going away and then boom, a recession hit, boom, a writer strike mm-hmm, hit. Mm-hmm. And I had to come to terms with do I want to live a self-serving life or do I want to live a life of service? Mm. And I turned that around and that is directly related to my relationship with God. So for me, I started thinking about, I said, I wanted a legacy. That legacy cannot be me alone because if I'm the only one recognizing it, it's not a legacy. That's beautiful. (laughs) So, yeah. So I started being, I started with gratitude journals and vision boarding and all of that stuff. And I've always been a prayerful person. Um, and I do go to church. I just don't go to church every Sunday, but Church for me is wherever God is, and God is everywhere. So for me, it was about fellowship with friends. It was about supporting people and praying with friends who needed it, Mm -hmm. Um, and even when they didn't need it. But for me, the real turn was not begging God for things, but thanking God for things. And that changed everything. It changed everything. And then I opened up the world to stop. I wanted to make shows for other people, not just for me. And then everything changed. And now I'm rich.
0: Ah! (laughs)
1: <laughs> hey, come on now. But isn't that funny? But seriously, I spent seven years trying to get money and trying to be rich and trying to prove everybody wrong because I was so poor. Yeah, And yeah, that yeah. did not happen until I could appreciate it and give it to others. Woo. Now, don't nobody call me asking for me for money. But that's true, right? I could have created the Robin Thede sketch show. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I didn't. I created a Black lady sketch show so that it can live on in perpetuity.
2: Wow brilliant. And your willingness to put yourself in the position of a server to other levels of greatness also raises you to another position of legacy as well. Because everybody you put on, they will always mention their name as they duplicate themselves.
1: And I didn't get that early on. And even though people had helped me who I didn't know that that's, I know it just Who felt does? like a long time. Yeah, but I, everything <laughs> happens in divine time. But yeah. I think that's the thing I want people listening, especially if you're trying to be in any kind of business, but especially this one, you need to find a way that your gift will be given to others. A gift mm-hmm. is not a gift unless it's given. Amen. And that was always hard for me. I kept it to myself, even though I was performing and writing for others and doing all that. It was a mindset shift and it was a gratitude shift. And that has everything to do with God.
2: You said something that has so much meat on the bone. And that thing is really, really, really thick. I don't know if you're okay with it, but I would love to ask you to just kind of unpack this statement. You said in an interview, if you work at a place as the only black person, Mm -hmm. you're working in an environment of violence. I'm saying one more time, ladies and gentlemen, if you work at a place as the only Black person, you are working in an environment of violence. Miss Robin, what do you mean by that?
1: Absolutely. Um, Thank you for asking me that. No one ever asks me questions like this. See, this is why I wanted to do this. Don't Um, make me cry
2: because I'm uh, a thug. I'll make a
1: thug cry. (laughs) 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 What I mean by that is that when we are the only one, when we walk into a space where we change our hair from kinky curly one day to a straight pony down to the floor the next, and someone says, how did you do that? You're immediately othered. You're immediately seen as different and usually less than, and that's a simple one. The violence is when you have to come in every day to explain who you are, to validate your existence, to have people undermine you consciously or subconsciously, because the last thing they want is to be beat by a black person at their job. It's one thing to not climb the corporate ladder, but to have a black person beat them. I challenge every non-black person to really search inside themselves and see how they feel about that. And I guarantee you, we got a little more bite on it if the person is black. And Mm. that's what I'm, and I've been in those environments and I went to a predominantly white institution and I went to places where I had to find my community to be my armor as I went out for the days because when I'm in class and I'm in a linguistics class and we're talking about the African-American vernacular, English, AAVE, and they say, well, that's just slang. That's not proper English. And I'm making an argument 20 years ago to say, no, there are rules to the verb conjugations. There are rules to the adjectives, the adverbs. Like, I can tell you linguistically and grammatically why all of this works.
0: Preach. <laughs> and Preach. you're
1: telling me, no, that's just like how poor black people talk. Like, that is violence. It is violence to have to be constantly undermined. It is violence to have a white woman dump her lemonade in my lap when I'm on a panel talking to a school board about what kids in need, I'm in high school. I'm on the school board as the high school representative. This older white woman, 50-year-old white woman was trying to make a point. Nobody was trying to hear her. I said, I've raised my hand. They said, yes, Robin. I said two sentences. It solved the whole problem they've been arguing about for four hours. Under the table, she dumped her lemonade in my lap.
2: Wow. Slowly, slowly.
1: And I'm 17 years old. This woman is in her 50s. Wow. And she was mad because they listened to me. And I was the only black person in the room. And so I'm used to being in those spaces and I know the violence that happens. And I'll never forget that. I went out and cried. I went out to the payphone cause I'm, you know, th- of that age. And I went to the payphone and I called my mom and I was bawling. And she said, what do you want me to do? Cause I'm happy to come up there and read that lady, the riot act, or you can go tell her that mm. she, you don't deserve to be treated that way. Mm. And I said, I got it. And I wiped my tears away. And I said, you will never do that to someone again. What you did was utterly disrespectful. I am worthy of being here. And if you don't like my ideas, that's one thing, but you need to act like an adult. And I said, You just proved to me that age does not equal maturity. And I walked ah. away. I'll never forget a teacher that I had had in elementary school who gave everyone else like nice awards and, you know, like, oh, smartest in class or most friendly or whatever. She gave me the Miss Know It All Award. Wow. which was very rude. The picture on it yeah. was like a woman who looked... And it's condescending. And it's condescending. So yeah. little things like that are violence. It's just death by a thousand cuts. And then, of course, there's actual violence that we ensue even in a workplace where people yes. you know do things to us physically. But the emotional violence and the emotional warfare of being in an all white environment or a mostly white environment where you're pitted against the only other black person or where your only job is diversity and inclusion. No, no shade to those jobs. We need them. But like, why aren't you the CEO? Why aren't you the CFO? Mm -hmm. Like when you have those qualifications. So that's what I mean by that. And I could talk about that all day because we've all experienced it, but we don't recognize it enough. And I need non-black people to know that it's not passive aggressive. It's aggressive and it's violent. And we're not going to deal with it.
2: And I appreciate you for giving language to it, because often Mm -hmm. a lot of people don't have the language to be able Mm -hmm. to articulate the nuances exactly the way you did. And so how you articulated that was brilliant for those that still need to be acclimated and need to come up to par to understand just the gravity of what's happening in these little small nuanced spaces that continue to attack the trauma that already exists in us as people of color. It's already there. And these spaces yeah. where we are always the minority. I have a question for you. As a comedian, as I know that some of the greatest comedians have always uh, dealt with some of the most private demons. When you hear about John Belushi yeah. or Robin Williams, or all these other yeah. comedians who have these different uh, uh, monsters and demons.
1: Chris Farley, Chris all of them. Chris Farley, yeah.
2: all. Yeah. Really, you know what, sis? We can go down the list. We can just go down the list as some of the most phenomenal, humorous people have these wars that you would never think that they deal with the deepest levels of dark demons. Mm. You don't have to call names. Have you personally experienced that even in your own life? Or did you ever have a friend or anyone that you've seen it firsthand and can maybe give language to people that are listening that are just pedestrians in this? Yeah, What you've learned about that dichotomy that comedians live in?
1: Listen, we lose comedians every few months to trauma, to demons, to health issues. Some of them have overdosed. I can name half a dozen who have died in the last year alone. Um, And it's really hard. We're used to loss in the comedy community. There's one I know who won't drive alone uh, because he says the devil sits on the passenger seat next to him. Wow. And he sees him every day. And... I believe him. And I don't think he's mentally ill. I think those demons are very real and they show up in very real ways. I've seen them behind people's eyes. Like I've seen people who get possessed by the pull of Hollywood. Yeah, um yeah. and it's scary. And the drug use is always rampant. I have never, again, because I'm too cheap. I'm like, drugs are expensive. I'm not really trying to pay for drugs. <laughs> But you know what's funny for me? My demons are all internal. My demons are all saying, used to say, sometimes still say, you're not good enough. You know, you need to work harder, you know, blah, 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 Mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. So those are more personal demons. But if you listen to Richard Pryor's story, if you listen to, you know, growing up in a brothel and being beat by these people and being sexually assaulted by people when you're a kid and not knowing how to reconcile any of that. I think that comedy is a great outlet if you don't want to turn to like crime. You know, like you can use your abilities because some of the best criminals are the smartest and funniest people, but they've just turned it to comedy. So I think it's a beautiful thing. The most damaged comedians emotionally can look at a situation and see it for what it is and make you laugh because they pointed it out in a way. You're like, oh my God, they're so right. Mm -hmm. Or tell Mm -hmm. the stories like Pryor would do or Eddie Murphy. So I do think a lot of comedians can use it for good, but I think they struggle with it a lot. And it's a sad part about the community. And you think about all the people we have lost. And yeah. it's hard. It's really, it hard. really, really hard. Bernie was different. Bernie, you know, had health complications that he passed out. Yes. But yes. I just miss Bernie. I got to meet him. And he said, I don't care if there's 100 people, 1,000 people, or one person. If you don't give them the same show, you're not a professional comedian. You have to give Ooh. them the same show he was like don't be this comedian that's like oh there's nobody out in the audience you know I'm gonna give them a whack show he said no absolutely not if you do this it doesn't matter who's watching you do this and you're a professional so you know just stuff like that I'll never forget from people who have passed I never got to meet Robin Williams or Robin Harris I never got to meet so many of these people and so I just glom onto any like tape I can watch of them and Try to hear those lessons now because I think we never stop growing. So for anybody who doesn't really know the inside and out of the industry, there's a lot of really good people who are so supportive. And Chris Rock has been so supportive my whole career. Marlon Wayans, honestly, all the Wayans have been incredibly Beautiful. supportive the whole my whole career. Wow. Um, because they never were threatened by what I was doing. They wow. want to help the next generation to keep us going. Uh-huh. Um, so I think that's a beautiful thing, but there's a darker side. And I think for the younger comedians, it's really hard because drugs are so prevalent. And you know, uh, even simple things like weed get laced with things like fentanyl yeah. and all these things that they don't know yeah. about. And so they're not even out here really trying to do hard drugs. Yeah. Um, but people don't care when they're selling to black and brown people they're gonna sell them the bottom of the barrel stuff and like the rich white kids are not dying like that yes and yes. so i still feel like there's discrimination in criminal activity you know what I yeah, yeah 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's we yeah. get discriminated against at literally yeah. every level so i just implore my comedian family to stay focused on the prize and know that self-medicating is not the answer. Like your craft beautiful. is your answer. And that's what beautiful. I try to tell them.
2: Beautiful, beautiful. I yeah. I cannot thank you enough for your candidness on that. That was beautiful and the transparency that you just allowed us to have a chance to just to kind of peep into a world that you hear. About, but for you to give the type of heart and passion, it also lets you know how to pray for people, right? You, you, you know. That's right. Yeah, it, it you know just lets you know how you need to be lifting people up. I think that if we can be a community that just prays more for each other than we do kill each mm. other, we can even see start healing and change even in our own body, right? And so yeah. I love how you did it. It, it was it, it was it was it was it was beautiful. It was compassionate, and I commend you for that. Okay, I got a couple more before I let you go. Okay, we speed do it round. in music. No. We do it in music, <laughs> but I got to do it in comedy. Give me your top five.
1: Oh, this is going to get me canceled. I hate this. Top okay, five. Give um, me your top five. Richard
2: Pryor, of course. Eddie Murphy, Which, of course. Hold, hold on, baby girl. Where are we going from? Where are we going from? Five to one? To oh, God. Do I have to do that? Oh, yes! God. Okay. That's all the right, rules. Let me,
1: okay, fair enough. Let me do the five and then let me put them in order because I got to make sure I got my five okay, right. Okay. All right. Okay. So Pryor, Murphy, Mom's Mabelie. Wow. I'm going way back. uh God, this is where it gets hard. So contemporary me wants to say Rock and Chappelle, but I cannot leave Martin off that list. I can't leave Whoopi Goldberg off that list. I can't leave. You only leave. got
2: five. You only I know. got
1: five. <laughs> You're not only God can test me. I'm not doing five. I refuse. I can't do it. It's too hard.
2: <laughs> Did you just <laughs> whine? Did you say, I can't do it. It's too hard.
1: I, I just, just... turned into a five-year-old.
2: <laughs> okay, well, since you're gonna it's let so me be hard. on the show. Since you're gonna let me be on the show, I'm gonna give you grace. I'm gonna give you top seven. Lord Jesus. Okay, that's top my seven. seven. <laughs>
1: that's my seven. That's my seven. Okay. But you may I had to leave off Red Fox and Flip Wilson and oh but my god. But I need gosh, for you to okay. give it
2: an order though. Prior. In order.
1: Prior's easy. Prior's easy. Eddie Murphy's easy. Two. Um I'm going Moms Mabley 3. I think I did it in the order, actually. And then I would say... Okay. Richard Pryor, number one. One, right. Eddie Murphy, two. Gotcha. Moms Mabley 3, controversial gotcha. pick, but go watch the tape. She was ballsy got 70 years yes. ago.
2: I yes, um, yes.
1: Four, Martin Lawrence. Martin Lawrence. Five, can I say Chappelle, Chris Rock, Ty and leave it
2: at that? Sure. And now okay, you got great. two more. Two more. No, oh, nice. great. Red Fox. Red Fox. Six. Robin Harris, seven.
1: <laughs> but I want to put y- Patrice. I want to put Patrice on there. I want to put Bernie Mac on there. I want to put. I mean, so many. I'm missing so many. Obviously, Kevin. Wow. Kevin. Kevin's gonna kill me. But you know, he would understand not being in the top seven.
2: <laughs> Who's impacted you the most? Who Who personally has impacted you the most?
1: Larry Wilmore, no question. Larry created the PJs. Larry created the Bernie Mac show. Larry co-created Insecure. Like you Mm -hmm. gotta give this man his props. Like, but most people don't know Larry, but like you need to know Larry. I agree. And so the reason why he impacted me the most was because Larry said, my singular goal is to make you rich. And what he meant by that was not just money. Yeah. He said to me years ago when he was watching me do live sketch in LA, He said, you have something. He hired me as his head writer and he said, my singular goal is to make you rich because I know that if I make you rich, you will open the door for so many more black women um, behind you. And Mm. so he meant rich in terms of my experience in this business, but also monetarily and everything he has done has been to do that. And it's in ways that the public doesn't know. Yes, he made me the first black writer in late night history. Yes, we went to the correspondence dinner in Obama's last year and we wrote that speech. Yes, he has done those things, but also behind the scenes, when I got my first overall deal at Warner Brothers, I called him and we sat down and we broke bread and he told me everything about how the studios work, how to sell shows, how to pitch shows, even though I had sold a couple of shows. But Uh he said, he gave me the game. And so, yeah, he continues to do that. I was just talking to him two two
2: days ago. I salute that. A black man seeing a woman as his equal, somebody that he knows Absolutely. is going to be able to, do. I salute that. I'm so proud of that. And that's how we change the narrative.
0: Right. That's right. That's, that's, right. that's how
2: you change the narrative in tangible ways like that. That's Ladies right. and gentlemen, I'm not going to keep along longest because she got to go do 17 different characters, you know, and she got to go, she got to go play with the puppets. And she got to be go swimming in <laughs> her blow-up pool. That's right. Look out for them <laughs> rocks. Yeah, Look out for them rocks. Y'all, we have been blessed today. Thank you so much. This is phenomenal. And ladies and gentlemen, please, you may see your boy on a black lady sketch show doing something. I promise I'm going to do my best to be funny. Multi-talented, gifted, anointed, courageous, disruptor. Show some love for Robin Thede.
1: Oh, thank you. What a pleasure.
2: Honored. Thank you for taking our time. Thank you. So thank y'all so much for listening to Good Words, man. I hope you are enjoying yourself. I hope you're, man, enjoying the journey that you're taking with your boy. And if you are, please do me a favor. Leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Can you do that for me? I'd appreciate it. And don't you forget... You can never go too far, or you can't come back home. Good Words with Kirk Franklin is a collaboration between For Your Soul Entertainment, Sony Music Entertainment, Artsy Inspiration, and something else. Produced by Janicia Francis with senior producer Danielle Jones Wesley. Associate producers are Dania Hamid, Rachel Chodar, and Kyra Asebe Bansu. It's executive produced by Ron Hill, Reese Brooks, Sarita Wesley, Tom Koenig, Hybrid Agency, and myself, your boy, Kirk Franklin. This episode was mixed by Calvin Bailiff and special thanks to Charlie Yador and Steve Ackerman.